Greetings, dear listeners. The world is in upheaval, with Russia escalating, Iran up in arms, and populists gaining ground across the European continent. Shadi and I sat down to take it all in, and to throw in our pennies, into events that quite frankly feel like they're outrunning commentary. Stick around for part two of the conversation, where we focus in on Sweden and the fraught situation facing Muslims in Europe. It's for paying subscribers only, so head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe to get the whole thing. On to the show. Maybe just tell us where you are. Like, is anything interesting happening in Croatia right now that you can give us insight into? Um, in Croatia, not so much. I mean, there's Bosnian elections, and and uh, no, we don't. Never mind. But you don't <laughs> you want don't that. <laughs> and you get into yeah, exactly. I was in Kosovo. That was interesting. But again, probably bigger things going on in the world right now than than what's going on there. I mean, there's plenty to talk about that if uh, people are interested. But I think. Uh, it's funny. It's funny being in these sorts of places where the stakes are locally high, and then you sort of zoom out and look at the papers, and Putin's declaring nuclear war and <laughs> mass mobilizing for war in Ukraine, and uh, you know. Well, how about we Iran. start with that? Because I haven't been following it very closely. You probably are at least keeping track of some of those developments. Mm-hmm. I mean, how bad is it? How frightening is it? I I didn't see the exact. Like, what was the exact quote on nuclear war? Like, how serious I mean, was he about that? Look, I, I'll put it like this: It's one of these things that I've never, I've not really understood why uh, he hadn't done this sooner. It, it was pretty clear <laughs> that that like you know his his war effort wasn't going that well. Uh, you know that he had some success, sort of grinding it out, just basically throwing meat at the problem with like artillery barrages. And he took a good chunk of land and I don't know, what was that? April, uh, yeah. March, April. And then by May, it's, it just sort of ended. And it's like, okay, all right, dude, it's something, something's not right. Surely, even if you're, if your military generals are telling you things are going perfectly, something's not, not, not working well. Um, and, uh, he did nothing. There's just like, you know, there was, they just sort of dug in and, and waited. And obviously then the Ukrainians turned around and, and started shellacking them uh, because they've been getting good, uh, you know, American support, Western support, arms deliveries, and uh, they've been training. Um, so I, I guess what I'm getting at is that what he announced this time is something I was kind of expecting him to do in May, which is to say, okay, we've taken all this territory. We're going to run a bullshit referendum. Uh make it a part of Russia. And then what he said is, is, uh, is again, stands to reason. You know, this is a part of Russia. If you attack Russia, we, we will, you know, uh, we won't hesitate to use nuclear weapons because that's part of generally uh, nuclear deterrence doctrine is like, you know, an attack on, on sovereign territory is, uh, gets that kind of response. So I don't know. But then the question is of credibility. I don't know. I've seen a lot of people writing being like, oh, it's a bluff. It's a bluff. I don't know if it's a bluff. <laughs> it's the well, there's only the one way to find out, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's a gr- that's a good thing about nuclear warfare. Yeah, you can I mean, test it out and see what happens. Right, or 
You, or not. And then deterrence is upheld, right? <laughs> but, but you know, it's interesting. It is a, it's a, who was I talking to about this? Um, oh, I forget, but I was in a discussion. I mean, it is unprecedented when you think about it. it what hasn't been ever tried before, right, is you annex territory and you say, um, this is mine. And then you say, if you try and roll back my aggressive annexation, I will nuke you. That's mm. genuinely innovative. Wow. And it pre- I hadn't and thought it present- about it that way. It presents a precedent of sorts, right? Hmm. Yeah. So it's it's bad. It's bad that, that, that this is now in danger of becoming a precedent, I guess. I don't know who else would avail themselves of it, but it never really has happened before. Well, there's only so many nuclear powers and only a couple of them are legitimately crazy. Or, right. or not crazy, but... Um, quote unquote, irrational or irrational from a Western perspective of rationality. We mostly just have Russia and China and I suppose Iran some at some point in the future. Um, Who else do we have? It could be. Oh, yeah. um, Is there another bad country? Bad country with nukes? I don't know. (laughs) Pakistan? Yeah. India? Yeah. France, the list, the list grows. Britain, <laughs> America, America. No, look, I mean, uh, it's just, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's, it's uh, a genuine innovation. I guess we're, we're, we're going to see a lot of theories tested. Um, I'm not going to say. Oh, I it's forgot not... Israel. We forgot Israel. Oh yeah. Wait, no, they don't have it. What are you talking about? Oh, <laughs> you let the cat out of the bag. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I don't know. It's 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 a it's a genuinely interesting moment. I guess I've just been so busy that I'm not. I, I haven't been quite as rattled by it as I might be if I was sitting in D.C. and thinking more about it. Um, and yeah, also what about the mass? Because, mm, yeah, the mass mobilization I, part of it. I, I mean, I'll just say on the nuclear thing before on the mass mobilization, largely because I've been sort of expecting this. I guess at some point, and so. I, I don't. I haven't gamed it out, but it's. I'm, I'm just not as rattled by it as perhaps I should be. Uh, on mass mobilization, I mean that's the other big question. Um, and I mean you're you're more expert on sort of you know regime stability and things like that, and 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 how these sorts of things work, how maybe authoritarian regimes end up crumbling. But that's another one that I've been surprised about. Right, that that he hasn't done this sooner because again, it looks like this wasn't going anywhere as of May. So what you've been waiting for, bro, does, you can't like flip a switch and, and just mobilize overnight. So, you know, on the one hand, the, my thinking was um, either he's misinformed or, or something. But on the other hand, is right. Like he's uh, he knows his country better than certainly any of us do. Uh, like authoritarians are if they're good and, and have lasted for a long time, they they know their weaknesses pretty well, I assume. So maybe uh, he's been worried about doing mobilization because it undermines the regime. I don't know. And he would have a good point there. But then the question is, why would he have shifted just in the past couple of weeks if he had already, if he had been waiting all this time because he didn't want to take the risk, it might undermine regime stability. I mean, maybe he just decided, look, it's risky, but the war is going terribly. So this is something I have to seriously consider now. And that's the thing, right? Like at some point, uh, losing the war outright becomes a risk to regime stability and you, you balance that against, you know, how well you can repress something at home, right? 
Um, and that has to be the calculus at this point is we risk this. Doesn't seem like he's prepared the populace for some sort of mass sacrifice war. You know, he talks about it, but the stories, um, you know, my, my friend Valerie Hopkins, who's now back in Moscow reporting for the New York Times, had an article a couple of weeks ago uh, saying that, that life in Moscow is completely normal, you know, before huh. the mobilization. Like he had managed to completely not um, make it feel like it's wartime in Moscow, basically by recruiting uh, <laughs> Muslims for the provinces to to go fight as cannon fodder in the Ukraine war. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's ethnic minorities. It's not core Russians from Moscow and St. Petersburg that are fighting and dying in this war. It's, um, it's colonial, uh, subject peoples of the old Russian empire that are still part of, you know, the Russian Federation. Uh, they've been thrown into the meat grinder. So now that might be changing. And, and that's, a that's a, a dangerous thing. A, a friend of mine in Kosovo actually yesterday, two days ago, mentioned this to me. It's like, it's very similar to the wars in, in Yugoslavia in the sense that in Belgrade, um, you know, until until the NATO bombing started happening there, uh, Milosevic was very careful to not basically go for a mass mobilization that would then actually upset the the core parts of the of uh, you know Yugoslav at the time Serbian society uh, that were you know if not supporting him necessarily fully were quiescent about it. They were like, yeah, you know. Stuff's happening. Yeah. The the leader's doing it, so maybe maybe that changes now. Um, I don't know. I'm I'm far from sanguine about any of it. That I'm predicting that like bad things are you know that good things are going to happen or that like the regime's going to to cave. I don't know how you how you know these things, but the ingredients are certainly there for something bad to happen to Putin. Um, I did we'll see, see the pictures of this mass. I don't know if it was a mass exodus, but certainly thousands of people, thousands of Russian men are fleeing because they want to avoid uh, conscription, including into Georgia. I don't know if you have a sense of how widespread that is. There does seem to be some lack of enthusiasm at the very least. And I just saw that they qualified the conscription call by saying that those in certain white collar jobs would be exempt. The white collar exception, apparently. Um, yeah. which is also a risky thing if, if you're sort of, if you're sending the poor and the working class to fight and die, and then it becomes known that others are getting exemptions because they're in certain kinds of jobs. I mean, that, that's probably not ideal from a regime perspective either. Honestly, from what I'm seeing and, you know, it's, it's all very partial and I have no idea, but it seems like it's, it's pretty random, um, you know, even the whole concept of a partial mobilization, uh, I think most people don't know what's happening. I don't think there's been any properly strict sense of what qualifies for what exemption or, or what, you know. So I think there's generally, you know, anything between, uh, I think, terror among those that have been able to and have been following and are trying to see what's happening in Ukraine and don't want to go there. Those are the ones fleeing. There have been, you know, huge lines, people heading for the border, like, uh, tickets for flights out of Russia sold out. And, you know, and obviously they have limited options at this point because a lot of the airlines have been have been already cut. Um, but uh, also, you know, just just kind of that 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 classic Russian resignation. There have been a couple of clips out there of, you know, just completely drunk Russians showing up for 
military service and these like barracks and, you know, staggering around and uh, who knows, who knows? Um, I mean, people always sort of point out that, that, you know, Russia has never been a particularly orderly place and the way it does war has never been particularly orderly. So I'm not going to look at these sort of scenes of chaotic conscription and conclude that uh, nothing's going to come of it, that it's just shambolic. But, uh, you know, at the same time, this is not a war of, you know, uh, of cavalry and, and uh, horse-drawn artillery where you can just like throw people at the problem. You need some training in, in modern warfare. And maybe they really will be coming up woefully short on that. I really don't know. I'm not a military expert or analyst, but yeah. Worth watching. But it's also like, what are they dying for? I think there's also a major enthusiasm gap between the two sides. I mean, the Ukrainians are fighting for their very survival, for the existence yeah. of their nation as they know it. It's just hard for me to understand how motivated ordinary Russian conscripts would be on the front lines. Like, what, how would they even conceptualize what they're fighting for? I, you know, I, I, uh, the only, the only sort of note of caution is that, um, it's not like the Red Army was fighting, you know, out of ideological zeal and fervor, uh, in World War II. You know, I, Stalin had people in the back just shooting people who were deserting. It was just basically that classic throwing meat at the problem thing. And, um, I mean, arguably, they were defending their homeland, so that they did have that. So I guess that was a story that was told them, but it wasn't sort of a a terribly popular war, I think, at the time. Uh, there was more ideology behind it than what, what Putin seems to be able to gin up. But then again, you know, he's trying to say that this is the world attacking Russia and stuff like that. I, I, I can't imagine that it's properly resonating, um, but maybe it is. I don't know. I really don't know. Um, mm. But... You know, we'll see. We'll see, I guess. The The question is also is, is whether this is also cover for him trimming his ambition some more. Maybe what we're looking at here is uh, him trying to surge troops in to hold what he's got so far in hopes that the Ukrainians won't be able to take any more, declare that this is now Russian territory, deter by nukes, and then maybe maybe there's some kind of, you know, push for negotiations after that. The main problem is I don't see the Ukrainians negotiating at this point. They've lost so much, plus they've tasted a sense of being able to roll it back at this point. So I don't know. Um, and then it becomes a question about like Western resolve, about how, how much will they be supporting the Ukrainians if the Russians sue for peace holding all of this territory. And this gets back to the nastiness of this, this idea of annexing territory and then defending the annexation with nuclear weapons. That's a nasty precedent to just sort of accede to. Um, so yeah. we'll see. Yeah. And are the Ukraine Ukrainian goals um rolling back uh, Russian forces from all captured territory or only a certain I mean what what to them like do you have a sense of what their their um military end goal is that's also plausible? Look, I mean now especially now at their their moment of um with momentum shifting their ways, they're certainly not going to be talking about uh, limited gains. Um, you know, I, I think Zelensky has been, has sort of changed as, as, um, 
as fortunes have shifted, it's certainly now at this moment, it would it would not behoove him to start lowering his gains. I haven't heard anything of what they're saying in private and what, what is realistic on this. Uh, certainly in public, they're saying we, we're taking it all back. We're expelling the, the invader. That includes yeah. Crimea, which has already been annexed. So, um, you know, we'll see. Okay. But, you know, so... Uh, I don't know. Let's 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 talk a bit about Iran, Shadi, because you know it's it's since we're talking about Russia and sort of regime stability, I've been struck by, you know, yet another round of of um, uprising in Iran. What? Why? Why is it that 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 it never seems to succeed there? You know, like and again, this feels again. I I'm I'm really looking at this from afar, so I can't say that. To what extent it feels exactly like the Green Revolution, but we had a martyred woman, you know, uh, as a symbol of revolt. You had an unhappy people uh, taking to the streets. Um, do you, what what is it about the Iranians that that makes their repressive regime so resilient? Is there is there like studies of like successful regime resilience? Like, do do people study that? Like, people study democracy. Yeah, yeah, there there is a um a sort of subfield on authoritarian durability, is how it's often called. Mm. Um so yeah, people study authoritarianism and and sources of regime re- resilience. I just I think the explanation is actually maybe a bit simpler than all that. It, it's just really hard to overthrow an authoritarian regime. Um it tends to like if you have repeated tries, then you know the as time passes on, maybe one protest movement or one or at one specific moment something will click, and there will be a confluence of factors that lead to regime over overthrow but in any particular opposition mobilization it it is very hard to succeed, and in some ways, I think it's becoming even more difficult, considering how regimes that are willing to use repression, first of all, they have um, the sort of surveillance capacity that they wouldn't have had, say, 40 or 50 years ago. Um, And the state is just more, states are stronger and more dominant, at least in this narrow sense. Um, They're just more able to keep track of how, where people are protesting, how many people are protesting, um, they've been preparing for this moment for years. They've had a lot of experience pushing back protesters over the past, you know, 20 years, but especially since the green movement in 2009, they've done this time and time again, and they've organized their security and intelligence services and, and the revolutionary guards to basically be very, to be pretty proficient at suppressing internal dissent. And all of these regimes are so obsessed with survival that they don't actually know how to fight. Well, to be fair, Iran actually does have, you know, a pretty good military compared to their Middle Eastern neighbors. But if you look at other countries in the region, like Egypt is very good at policing its own people, but Egypt wouldn't know how to fight a war in real life. They don't, I mean... Uh, <laughs> Arab armies are known to be terrible when they're actually fighting um, outside their own borders or defending their own borders. Uh, that's just not what they're designed for. Mm-hmm. So um, 
but yeah, it's just like, how do you actually overthrow a regime? So you have these protesters, um, the protests seem to be growing, but there isn't any clear leadership structure. There aren't any clear demands that are coming from the protesters beyond stop repressing us, Hmm. but there isn't, they don't have a vision for what the alternative regime looks like or what they actually want to happen to the existing regime. I mean, how does that actually work? The regime presumably isn't just going to crumble. There would have to be some thinking as to like, what are the intermediary steps and what are gains that are short of a full revolution? Because you can have successful protest movements, but then there's also successful revolutions outright. Those are very difficult, like actual actual full-blown revolutions that dismantle the existing regime structure to such a degree that the regime no longer exists in any form. So... I mean, all those are open questions. I I don't know in the case of Iran to what extent the thinking is advanced. Um, it says I don't follow this closely, but that those are to me the challenging questions. And if we're talking about sp- spontaneous protests that just started a few days ago, um, or six or seven days ago now, I think we're, we're at that stage. I mean... They were spontaneous. So how do you go from a spontaneous protest movement to something more organized? And if you recall, in the Arab Spring, it wasn't actually a revolution in Egypt. Um, The military basically co-opted the protest movement and forced Mubarak out. But the regime, in some form, survived. Right. So the equivalent of that in the Iranian case would be if the Iranian military somehow decided to stand with the people, but that's very hard to envision Um, because the Iranian, yeah, it's an interesting thought. I just, from what I understand about the Iranian context, there's no conceivable way the Iranian revolutionary, because I mean, there's also kind of revolutionary ideology. You have the Revolutionary Guard in particular, which is very committed to the survival of this revol- of this ongoing 30-year-plus revolution. Um, wait, how many years has it been? Sorry, 40 years. Wait, mm. my edition, let's get, okay, 1979 minus, minus 2022, <laughs> 40, <clears throat> 43? Yeah, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Okay, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah, 43. But, you know, but you have, a, you have a military infrastructure that is very committed to continuing the revolutionary regime. Yeah. Well, so look, um, so what happened um, exactly to juxtapose, how do you juxtapose uh, Tunisia and Egypt? Because, you know, at least the Egyptian case, you had the Muslim Brotherhood that were institutionalized. And so, you know, even though the military, you know, persisted and the regime persisted, though it was sort of like a, you know, a deposition of, of one of its own. Um, how did it work in Tunisia and why was that successful? Because that too was, you know, at least on the surface, spontaneous because of, uh, you know, uh, that guy burning himself alive and, 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 and the protests yeah, so that sprung the Tunisian, up around that. So the authoritarian regime in Tunisia... Um, had not actually successfully politicized the Tunisian military. The Tunisian military, somewhat unusually for the region, actually had some reputation of being professional, um, but also they just weren't as key to regime 
regime stability because actually Ben Ali, who was ousted in 2011, um, ex-president Ben Ali, was so focused on internal security that he focused on the police and the Ministry of Interior. And that was his real source of strength internally. He wasn't, he hadn't relied on the military as much for internal security. And there wasn't a tradition of military politicization the way we've seen in Egypt, Syria, a number of other countries. So that was a key difference. So he couldn't necessarily go to the Tunisian military and say, well, can you guys mobilize and shoot into the crowds? Mm. That wasn't really um, something that was obviously available to him. To be fair, the Egyptian regime didn't do that either. But that was also um, because the Egyptian regime knew that it that it had the, it had so much popular support because there was just a legacy of support for the military from independence. So they calculated correctly that they could say we're on the side of the people and we're just going to get rid of the troublesome character of Mubarak, and then we can still keep our share of the power during a so-called managed transition, if that makes sense. But yeah, yeah, Tunisia just was a very, like the military just did not play the same kind of role. And the police were not sufficient to put it down. Like basically whatever structures he had invested in yeah. were insufficient to, to keep it all together. I mean, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's sort of a, uh, you know, inappropriately jokey question, but it, it's, it's got a, a, a kernel of seriousness to it. You know, I mean, like, in the West, in open societies, we invest a lot of time studying democracies. I, yeah, I guess it's, a, it's the nature of, of, uh, of autocracies that they're not going to be sharing these sorts of secrets. But, you know, you'd think that if there was like an autocratic international, there'd be like lessons learned and they'd be studying this shit pretty carefully. I oh, mean, well, maybe they, they do. do have and it. They do. And there are some major insights from the Arab Spring that have been adopted since then. So, for example, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, also to some extent, Syria, although different context. But I think one of the major lessons from the early protests in 2011 is that you don't concede anything to the opposition. You don't meet them halfway. Um, you just, you have a zero tolerance approach instead. So the idea is that Mubarak was actually too soft, that Ben Ali in Tunisia was actually too soft, that if they had decided from day one to use brute force, to not waver, and to not display any confusion. You go all in with repression because being half-hearted in your repression doesn't really work. And protesters see that weakness. They see that the regime is wavering. They see that the regime coalition is not united, and they exploit that weakness. Yeah. And that's why I'm actually very pes- – I'm pretty pessimistic about the future of protest in the Arab world for precisely this reason because I think most Arab autocrats and their intellectual supporters, they've come to that conclusion. Hmm. You don't – like this middle – like limited competition, you know, like bringing in some members of some opposition parties in or allowing the brotherhood to have – 20% of parliament or letting people mobilize, but only to a certain degree, it's very hard to get this kind of like perfect calibration when it comes to how much mobilization you're willing to tolerate. 
the easier way is just to say no mobilization is permissible and any sign of mass protests will be dealt with without apology and with sheer brutality. I mean, that's that's the Sisi approach in Egypt. Well, so, you know, what's interesting about that, it's, you know, you're saying it's sort of like a, a new uh, understanding, but I mean, it, it's that's a sort of tried and true. No, know, it's not. It's not new. Ruling, I right? just think like, it was reinforced in light of the experience of the Arab Spring. Because Assad's daddy was famous with that, right? Like, I mean, he, he was just like massacre outright, destroyed. Yeah, uh, and, exactly. And, and again, like, yeah, going back, um, I'm even thinking, yeah, Yugoslavia was not that repressive, but it was this sort of idea is like, first you smack it down and then maybe, you know, in once you've, you've, you've uh, set up your, your, your full authority on something, then you can maybe reconcile the reconcilables and co-opt them or something like that. But it's yeah. always interesting, right? It's yeah. like authoritarian governance is really, I was, I've been thinking about that a lot this week. It's, it's, you know... I think in the caricatured way of thinking about it is, uh, you know, some kind of monarch or king or, you know, but but dictatorship is is a is a really unpleasant job. And I don't mean just unpleasant because you have to hurt and kill people, but just like unpleasant because you're never secure. You're always sort of looking out over your shoulder for something that's going to come up. And, you know, you're um, you have to be paranoid all the time whether you're going to get uh, screwed by an uprising, by economic shortages. And uh, so you have to be somehow like, you know, uh, what is it? <laughs> Output legitimate uh, on, on some level. You have to, on the other hand, watch your back for other people who are trying to come at you. Uh, your own security services have like concentric rows of, of, of security from your own security. I mean, I don't know if you saw, I think I sent you a, a text uh, maybe 30 minutes before we started, but there's like rumors that they... That something's in going China. on in China. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, so you I know, searched I mean, for that and I couldn't really, I couldn't find anything from legitimate sources. It just seems that people have been tweeting about it and it's very yeah. impressionistic. But totally. I think that actually gets to your point that even even in a context like China, where the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, is seen to be... Um, you know, fairly united, um, you know, behind uh, President Xi and, and so on, that even there, there is still going to be considerable paranoia. And just the fact that coup rumors will come up is like, even if they're not real, the fact that you can have coup, coup rumors is probably of concern to, you know, whoever's in charge in China right now. So, uh, but I think that I've always wondered why do authority being an authoritarian has never seemed particularly appealing to me when I think about, you know, different career trajectories <laughs> that could have been available to me. Like one of the least appealing is to be part of a dictatorial regime that uses force against its own people. The level of stress that would probably entail, I don't know, maybe just people love power. I've never really totally related to the idea of this very strong innate desire for power because i i would just much prefer to write and to not necessarily be in a position where i actually control the levers of the state but maybe like once you start tasting that that's like once maybe it's one of those things like escargot mm. where if you've never had escargot before mm -hmm. you're not you don't feel like a strong you're not into it because like whatever it's escargot who cares why would i be into that i can just have normal food 
But the people who start having escargot, which for people who aren't aware, is a, a dish. Snails, French snails. Well, I don't know if they're from. Any, no, they can be any France. snails, just prepared in the French style. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can have American snails prepared. Yeah, yeah. But once you have, once you have that first taste of the snail, then you're like, oh, oh, this is what they've been talking about. So this is what it feels like to have a snail, and then you decide. The only, that the only you just thing want to have that. Indefinitely. Let me just correct your metaphor, though. It's not. It's not snail. It's human flesh, right? It's. It's eating the long <laughs> pig. It's like <laughs> no one knows what this is like, and then you taste it, and you're like, "Oh my goodness, this is delicious!" And then well, that's you're what happened, I think, with Jeffrey Dahmer, right? I'm not watching this series, uh, but <laughs> no, but he was he he was a cannibal who developed a taste for human flesh, right? Right. So apparently, some people, and there have been cannibalistic tribes in yesteryear. I don't know how prevalent that ever became. Anyway, that's a little bit of a diversion from the main point, which is apparently people love holding power and concentrating it, even if it is stressful. Yeah. Um, I also don't find the idea of like killing and torturing your own citizens to be particularly appealing. Like, Okay, like but that- you know, I mean, like, I, I feel like I don't want to say that that's, you know, the limit case. I think you probably get there necessarily as things go but I, you know, I'm I'm more struck by by sort of you know, not not full totalitarian police state stuff, but but on the road to it, you know. And I don't know if all roads lead to full totalitarian police state stuff, but you know, you and I have talked about this before. It's 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 I think I think there's like a path dependency on this. You you sort of start uh, down this path, and then you create situations for yourself that require you to go further and further. I mean, I'm not sure it's like the like the sweet, sweet taste of human flesh that is so, you know, appealing. It's just you sort of find yourself going in that direction. If you're someone like um, like Assad Jr., right? You're, you're just born into it, and you know your 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 dad, who's sort of learned by doing, tries to impart lessons for you, and so you know it's sort of all you know. It's it's you're you're, you're thrown into it, and that's you're, you're managing it, um, and your life kind of depends on it. I, so, I mean, I, I, I don't doubt that a lot of these guys are, you know, have some sort of sadistic tendencies. But, you know, the, what's striking to me is that, you know, we talk about uh, democratic politics uh, and then, you know, we, we assume that authoritarianism somehow is, you know, doesn't involve politics. But when you think about it, all this like palace intrigue, you know, who knows, probably nothing's happened in China, but we'll see maybe by the time this is published There'll be more news and, and something will have happened. Regardless, there's always intrigue within the, you know, the, uh, the Communist Party. All sorts of backstabbing, uh, rising princes, uh, you know, purges that happen within the party. Politics is real. It happens. It's just it's not legitimated by the, by the ballot. Uh, but, you know, you can't, you can't repress the political. And so, yeah, I don't... I, 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 I just sort of want to qualify this idea that, that, you know, authoritarianism is a life calling as you seem to have it. You know, it's just like, oh, you know, the, I really like this. This is great. <laughs> I feel like I feel like it's, it's probably never like that. You know, I mean, I think they probably some of them enjoy it by the time, like, you know, and as they get sort of degenerate over time, like Saddam Hussein and and and, uh, and Stalin and like, you know, these sorts of really, you know, terminal cases as they become, or Putin for that matter, you know, you just have this kind of, um, 
as it gorges itself and, and becomes more uh, corrupt and decadent, uh, sure, yeah, it becomes hedonistic on some level. But I, I, I think the process of getting there is one of just sort of politics and power consolidation and lack of opposition, which feeds into, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're, you're jailing a shit ton of people and, and torturing dissidents. Well, there, yeah, and I think there's a very practical reason why once you start repressing, it it creates its own momentum. Because if you've committed some atrocities, then if the opposition ever gains control, it's probably too late for you. That there's going to be some kind of accounting, um, that there's going to be trials. Like, are these people given amnesty? So if you're a military leader, and let's say you weren't in support of full-on dictatorship, but in the process of being a military leader, you did suppress some protests, those protesters are probably, and you know, and their, and their kin are not going to forget what happened. So there's always this risk that you will be called to account. This was always, this was a challenge in the Latin American transitions, is how do you have a pacted transition where, you know, in, in many cases, uh, military leaders are, are given some kind of amnesty or there isn't a full on truth and reconciliation. And that's the only way they were able to get um, members of the military in these countries to go along with transitions. So you have to make some kind, there has to be an off ramp for the authoritarians, but there's no guarantee that they'll get that. And that's why they fight until the very end, because for them, like, will they be forced into exile? Will their assets be seized? Will their children be harassed or even arrested or detained? I mean, there's all these things that you have to think about once you've become even a middling authoritarian, even for a year or two. And maybe you're actually someone who feels somewhat conflicted intellectually and morally about what you're doing. But if it comes to your kids, if it comes to your family, if it comes to what country you'll be able to spend your dying days in, those are, re those are things, I mean, what was Essid going to do? Like for him, there was no off ramp. So he only had either he, he and his family would potentially be killed or he fights until the very end. But what was the middle ground that Essid could have accepted after he had killed tens of thousands of people, then it goes to a hundred thousand, then, then it's too late for you because then there will never be an off ramp for you. If you've, if you committed those, th that much atrocities. Um, but, uh, but on the desire to kill, so that's a practical side. I will say on the, the taste for human flesh, if you will, the desire to kill that, I think there is something innate in all humans, and I think luckily most of us who have grown up in democratic societies, like this part of us doesn't really come out all that much, thank God. But bloodlust is a universal thing. We see in particular circumstances how ordinary people across time and place start to develop a taste for blood. They enjoy seeing their fellow countrymen killed and humiliated and tortured and whatever else it might be. There is something about subjugating your adversaries or your political enemies at home that people do seem – some people seem to – I don't want to say enjoy it because I don't think it's like, oh, I enjoy this. But 
you know, I've talked about my relatives in Egypt who supported the coup and the massacre post uh, July 2013. I mean, that's an example of bloodlust. They wanted they wanted though they wanted their opponents in Egypt to be suppressed, even yeah. killed. Yeah. So, and you know, we've seen it in in the Balkans time and time again. So it it happens it can happen anywhere, I guess. The question is, under what circumstances does that dark side of the human experience come out? Obviously, there has to be a confluence of factors. You know, just when you were talking there about um, the, the, even before we get into the, the, the bloodlust element of it, it is striking, you know, when you talk about, say, Assad, you know, sort of finding himself in the situation where he has to uh, has to repress. And, I, you know, I, I, I suppose... There has been scholarship on this. You perhaps know better than me. I mean, on some level, I, I, I recoil from, you know, trying to armchair psychologize these people, apart from just pointing out that it's complicated. But as you were talking there, what, what, what jumped out at me, right, is, uh, is that, that, that famous Clausewitz, you know, uh, quip uh, about uh, war being politics by other means. But that's partly what, what, you know, you have an authoritarian uh, regime and authoritarian rule works that way. It's a kind of, you know, uh, one-sided um, repressive war on the population, on the, the elements of your population that are existing. It's politics, basically. It's violent politics, politics made violent. And yeah, and I think that does tap into, again, that, that, that innate question of, you know, to put it... Uh, Bluntly, the friend-enemy distinction, which is the most human thing, and that involves, um, at the limit, uh, vanquishment, and that's where mm. it, it is where 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 you know uh, the evil Nazi jurist Carl Schmidt is coming at it from. He's he's pretty un, un, unsparing about that. He says that 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 is at the core of politics, not just of humanity, but of politics. That's political behavior, and it's you know it's the mystery then of like how do you get you know from that to um, the kind of you sublimate that, I guess, into the democratic instinct. That's that's your 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 favorite Chantal move is is you yep. know not 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 somehow saying that 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 fight that that lust goes away, but how do you sublimate it into something that is not zero sum, but that is somehow you know pushed out into the future? Yeah, um, because there isn't there's also this innate desire to be left alone. So I think that. These different parts of the human experience are always in tension, but maybe I feel it more because I, like at a very fundamental level, my ultimate political desire is to be left alone to do what I want to do. Um, obviously, not everyone feels the same way <laughs> about like that that kind of objective, but I do think that at some, there is like an anti-authoritarian impulse that all of us are able to draw upon if we know where to look. And if we just realize, like, so, um, yeah, at some fundamental level, that's the anti-authoritarian impulse and the authoritarian impulse go hand in hand. Because part of what happens is you're so afraid that others will use authoritarian methods on you and your family and your community. So you say, well, if that, those are the choices in front of me, I would rather my tribe or my family or my community dominate rather than the other way around. So it's, that's why I'm always so attuned to existential conflict, because what existential conflict does is 
it converts what might otherwise be an anti-authoritarian impulse into an authoritarian impulse. That's it for the main episode, dear listeners. Stick around for part two of the conversation, where we focus in on Sweden and the fraught situation facing Muslims in Europe. It's for paying subscribers only, so head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe to get the whole thing. Hope to see you with a bonus.